Sutra 36, the ninth Bhumi. The transformation of one species into another is brought about by the inflow of nature. Whatever you do, you need courage. Whatever course you decide upon, there is always someone to tell you that you are wrong. There are always difficulties arising that tempt you to believe your critics are right. To map out a course of action and follow it to an end requires some of the same courage that a soldier needs. Peace has its victories, but it takes brave men and women to win them. There once was a time when the mind strived to know, but now the time has come where the mind becomes still and like a seed planted in rich soil, all the pure potential of the infinite power began to blossom, sprout, and grow. All that power was within us, waiting in something like a king's tomb. This light of the universe is the kingdom of God, and now it is our time to bloom. This sword was so heavy, much more dense than I alone could ever carry. That's when I realized it was not I who held this sword, but rather the I that I thought of myself to be was gone and had been buried. Since the I had died, now we were reborn. This sword cut through the notion of I and me, since the nature of this sword did not only cut through ego, but also had the power to burn. This sword was always our responsibility. It was never up to just me. And so this sword's purpose was to protect all beings, allow freedom, and extend righteousness throughout sovereignty. And did this sword have a name? How would we ever know? It cut through whatever was not needed. It could kill or cure with a single blow. O mighty sword, we carry you not by our own power alone. For those of us who gaze upon you, we have caught a glimpse of power from the great unknown. And so the flaming sword spoke. I give fearlessness to all beings. I dispel the fear of death and ocean of rebirth. In every age, wherever there is decay of righteousness and the purpose of life is forgotten, I take form to destroy evil and wickedness to establish peace upon the earth. The sword never told us its name, and so we would come to know it as fearlessness and truth. This was the power of love that had come back to protect the children of life and redeem our world's youth. For I alone could not carry it, but rather we hold it upright to slash the wickedness away. Glory be to God, the children of life will be saved. And at any moment that this mind began to fixate upon the idea of myself, the sword would burn bright and slash the ego's fixation of its own separate self. There we were left together. We were always one united whole, often clouded by the perceptions of race, creed, and beliefs. But at our core, we are threads of the spiritual soul. What have you come to reveal to us? Terma, said the sword. And what is Terma? The secret or hidden teachings seven scrolls that have been concealed. 
and until the conditions were right, I have kept these teachings locked and sealed. These teachings are wisdom and may come in the form of myths from storytellers, who transmit the traditional teachings and wisdom in the form of epics, legends, fables, and poems. For thousands of years, when there was an absence of written tradition, these stories were responsible for the correct handing down of cosmogonies, myths, hero sagas, and genealogies of clans and royal families. Often people are not ready for this wisdom, but now the protectors have come forth to carry the great weight of this blissful burden. You are my Turton. A Turton is a treasure revealer, the ones who are dependable to the Great Spirit. You have no reason to fear the blade or my fire, but rather the time has come where the truth will not be feared, since the truth will no longer be concealed by injustice. Carry me into the world, and I will do the rest. Ride upon the back of Wind Horse, and I will illuminate the spiritual source from the center of your chest," said the sword. But what are these secret teachings of the Dharma? Why have they come now? And are these teachings the truth, the way, and the Dharma? The secret teachings of the Dharma may be stored in a physical object, such as a text or relic that has been buried in the ground. They may be within a rock, a crystal, an herb, or they may manifest through the trees and plants sprouting from the ground. They may be hidden in the water or floating within the sky or space. The hidden treasure is like a gateway into the dawn of a new age. They are scripts or scrolls, and they are oral communication for the truth's continuation. They may be hidden for centuries, until the minds of earth are ripe for the proper occasion. The treasure is like a remedy. It comes to heal the suffering that separates the nations. A Turton must undergo a great journey so that the teachings can be interpreted and shared as revelations," said the flaming sword. The hand that held the sword was like an iron fist that came out from the clouds. We simply observed this blade and the power that it allowed. This was the next level, which was the ninth Bhumi, and so the great teacher spoke in silence when the words ran through me. In the ninth Bhumi, we have achieved so much that it seems there is nothing left to do, but somehow there is still more. The ninth Bhumi is called Good Intellect. On this Bhumi, the epitome of the discriminating wisdom is achieved. Good Intellect has non-flinching qualities and it is powerful. Once you begin to realize your own strength, you see that good intellect is much higher than ordinary intellect. On the path of awakening, your awareness is more powerful and speedy, so powerful in fact that nobody can stop us from fulfilling our power properly. The Paramita connected with the ninth Bhumi is power, the power of fearlessness and rejoicing. Conventionally, the word power has the sense of trying to gain victory. In a theistic approach to enlightenment, power is a victory over something. But in the non-theistic approach, power is based on rejoicing and fearlessness rather than trying to conquer the world. It is being in the state of power rather than having power over something or somebody. 
The guard at this level has enormous ability to discriminate between this and that without dualistic neurosis. They know all the languages of the universe. The Vajra guard is able to comprehend the languages and approaches of people in many different worlds, including the realm of God. On the ninth Bhumi, the guardian develops four types of discriminating awareness, Dharma, meaning, purpose, and confidence. With the discriminating awareness of Dharma, the guardian understands the doctrines, customs, and cultures developed over the ages by the human race. They understand the customs of all six realms. With the discriminating awareness of meaning, the guardian understands the meaning of words rather than just the letters. They understand that the customs of various societies have tremendous meaning behind them. Nothing is seen as a dharma or non-dharma, but everything becomes dharma. The guardian is very open-minded, and all traditions and customs are seen as an expression of Christ and Buddha nature. There is that kind of faith and trust in universality. With the discriminating awareness of definition, in addition to understanding the meaning, the guardian also understands the significance. By definition, we mean certain word. They understand the function or the pragmatic aspect of things, such as the purpose of the sword is the cut, or the purpose of the fire is to burn. The last category, confidence, is a very important one. This type of confidence is connected with Manjushri, the guardian of wisdom. Manjushri has a knowledge aspect and a confidence aspect, and of the two aspects, the confidence aspect is much more important. Confidence does not just mean being unafraid or being able to handle things. It means you can communicate with your own basic treasury. It means you have no notion of poverty at all. The guardian of the ninth Bhumi possesses eight great treasures. 1. Recollection 2. Intellect 3. Realization 4. Retention 5. Brilliance 6. Doctrine 7. Enlightenment and 8. Accomplishment All of these eight treasures represent our basic potential. They represent fundamental confidence that does not need any help or encouragement. You realize that we have these treasures and that you are the treasurer. That sense of fundamental wealth and richness has never been questioned. May I ask, how does the universal power behind this sword work? Gaze upon my everlasting steel and you will find what is to be revealed, said the sword. There in the steel, I saw an ultimate mirror, perfectly clear. I saw that we were the spiritual soul. We were that great and ancient seer. A mirror. In the sword's reflection, I relate with however you appear. For foes and enemies who face me, then I must reflect what is meant to come and attack. If they hold aggression, anger, or wage war, then I fight as the great spiritual weapon and will conquer them as I fight back. But if you gaze upon me with loving kindness, compassion, and righteousness, you will see yourself perfectly at peace. And I will remind you that you yourself 
are perfect just as you are, and so together, we will remain at ease. As a spotless mirror, I reflect ever clear, and if you face me with anger and hostility, I will reflect back your ultimate fears. And for those who are devoted, disciplined, and humble, you will discover that within yourself is the great and holy seer. Whatever a man or woman throws at me, I reflect right back at them. Justice and truth do not bend in any manner, and so evil must be condemned. The flaming sword burns away what is not needed, and we cut away any excuses. My duty and sharpness is to uncover our greatest potential and to expose what is deeply hidden and suppressed. The sword is divine and heavenly. It is ultimate and invincible. My duty protects all existence, since we are the guardians of the Mandala Principle," said the Flaming Sword. What is the Mandala Principle? It involves working with our life situation, our basic existence, or whole being. To begin with, we should discuss the idea of orderly chaos, which is the Mandala Principle. It is orderly because it comes in a pattern. It is chaos because it is confusing to work with that order. The Mandala Principle includes the Mandala of the Confused World and the Mandala of Heaven, or Nirvana, which are equal and reciprocal. The idea of orderly chaos is that our confusion is intentional. It is intentional and in that we deliberately decide to ignore ourselves. Every person knows deep down what is good and righteous, yet why does evil and cruelty manifest? Some aspect of us and our world has decided to boycott wisdom and enlightenment. The confused world wants to get on with our ego trips, with our passions, desires, our aggression, and so forth. Because of that, we create a mandala, a self-existing circle. The circle manifests as perception, consciousness, name and form, touch, feeling, desire, and the entire world of existence. It ripples into the way we build cities, states, territories, religions, beliefs, and so this pattern ripples outward from a central point. This pattern is based on ignorance and confusion because we claim to possess our names, our forms, our feelings, our cities, our religions, and the land. There is an aspect of space and ownership constantly. If we have land, and we wanted to make a definite statement that it is our land, we would have to put up a fence around it. The fence would mean that this area belonged to us, and that we wanted to work with that basis. We get onto our land, and we relate and begin to possess it. It belongs to us. This sense of possessiveness brings clinging to something, which means we are holding on to it. Through this clinging, we become very claustrophobic, fearful, and anxious. And so rather than allowing existence to open and grow, we are actually freezing it. The space becomes solid, which brings a tremendous struggle. A fight for it begins. And so there are now patrols, and soldiers, and wars, based on something that had order before any of us even arrived. The question is are we willing to relate with the space, or are we involved with the boundary? The idea is to work with the space, not to control it. 
to work with the world, not to dominate it. Look at the amount of money the world spends on wars, bullets, bombs, protection, and destruction. What if that same money was given to the arts, education, farming, shelters, and preservation? Immediately, we would shift from a fear-based world to a peace-based world, rather than diminishing. We would be flourishing in the natural mandala of existence, the way God saw fit for us. This idea would be the Garden of Eden. It is hidden deep within the human condition, which appears as control and neurosis, that the true order of the mandala was lost. You cannot control how a rose grows, or how a flower blooms, but that control is exactly what the world is trying to do. They are trying to limit what crops can grow, where they can grow, who can run businesses, who can go to school, how you must look, behave, and act. This control is a sense of imprisonment, which perpetuates a sense of struggle and suffering. Within this world, everyone is alert, willing to fight, willing to attack, willing to make money, willing to struggle with living situations in whatever way. And that reveals in this world, this is a total energy flourishing, whether creative or destructive. Within this energy, this potential, is what one might call nowness. Nowness is the sense that we are attuned to what is happening right now. Now the sense of sharpness upon my blade is very interesting, extraordinarily interesting. This is what we call primordial intelligence. If people see the blade, or sense it, they want to run away from it. But it could be said to be a gift from God, whereas everyone prefers to live in the ways that we have always continued on, the razor sharpness brings with it a sense of being fully there, with nothing tentative about it. The whole thing becomes extremely powerful, and that is the transcendental aspect. The enlightened aspect of the mandala and the confused world actually takes place on a razor's edge. The razor quality, or the sharpness of the blade, is when life as a whole becomes penetratingly sharp, unavoidable at the same time cutting. We could say that living itself contains pain. Within our existence there is suffering, which is the blade. The truth of the origin of suffering is finding out that there's such a blade that exists. Then there is the truth of the goal, which is connected with seeing the blade as the path, and so we must face reality in its fullest truthful nature," said the sword. Does that mean trusting the truth of pain will be transformative? You could say that it transforms into a sharpness or energy, and is no longer pain as a challenge. The process of life as whole provides energy that goes beyond confusion. When we say beyond, we are not talking about transcending the ordinary, we are talking about a way in rather than a way out. In other words, being able to see the source of the confused world is the heart of where we are at right now. That brings a sense of totality. So we are not discussing a war between confusion and heaven, considering how one should overcome the other. We are discussing the environment in which the energy of those two can exist and maintain the mandala. We are talking about the energy that gives birth and brings death at the same time, which is the idea of that which is 
or being in oneself. The process of nowness is happening whether we see it as confused or as freedom. From the point of view of the awakened state of mind, the basic mandala does not require anything extra in order to see things as they are. In the same way as an alchemist might view it, the transmutation is happening in every moment and it continues until the lead becomes gold. The world will continue to be heated until it is pure. The mandala itself has a rhythm in which it comes to fruition, the same way you cannot force a snake to shed its skin. The rate at which it goes is the rate at which it goes, and so the more people, countries, and nations that try to force or control the natural rhythm, the more they add to its destruction, but rather, we can let things flow. At this point, we might find the totality of the mandala extremely terrifying since it's out of our control. But even if we were to completely destroy it, the mandala simultaneously finds itself in a self-creative situation. This polarity is happening at every moment, in every breath and breath out, in every birth and in every death. But what is it that goes beyond this time and space? It is the presence of nowness. There is no end to it, yet it always goes on and always has been. For example, by trying to run away from death, which is what the world is doing as we speak, we are creating death. It is very gloomy and terrifying, but if we held space to realize the moment of nowness, we would see that we are self-existing. The mandala of creation is rich and fertile. My principle of this blade is simply to bring the world back to nowness, to cut through the illusion that perpetuates," said the sword. So the point of the sword is to cut or burn and bring us back to here and now. But how? All at once. We must shift together. When we pause and reevaluate our world's perspective, we bloom together and open into the mandala principle forever. Of course the mandala goes on, but humans are not the sole intelligence behind the universe. Humans can flourish in the future as long as the ignorance is reversed. Rather than spending billions and multi-millions on destruction and wars, we can shift our behavior and cultivate art, higher consciousness, learning, cultivation, and resources for the underprivileged and poor. We can bring this world together but it comes from a great shift, hence the razor's edge, and so my sword will prove to be powerful yet swift," it said. And as for the transformation of this mandala, can you explain its essence of transformation? How are humans a part of its origin, and what should we make of creation? The answer is best to be observed, but I will try to use words and explain. After all, Words, names, and descriptions are man-made. The transformation of one species into another is brought about by the inflow of nature. Incidental events do not directly cause natural evolution. They just remove the obstacles, as a farmer removes obstacles in the water course running to the field. The mind of any creature also wants to run to its original source of tranquility, but there are impediments on the way that obstruct the natural flow. Teachers, practices, and scripture 
do the job, much like the farmer or agriculturalist, to nourish the fertile growth. But there are also great machines or tools, such as spiritual centers, temples, community, or a spiritual sword that can cut through or redirect nature's flow. We are simply removing obstacles, and once the cultivator removes them, we don't need to tell the water how it can flow. The power of creation already knows. It is like the sun outside. It is always there, ready to come in view. The obstacles are the closed doors, windows, or smog from factories that cloud the sun from coming through. If we simply open the doors or focus on clean ways of living, the sun shines in. Out of all obstacles in the world, there is one thing a flaming sword cannot overcome. I have no control over the water, which is the feminine principle, as I cannot dictate the water's potential. Nothing in the world is as soft and yielding as water, yet for dissolving the hard and inflexible, nothing can surpass it. The soft overcomes the hard, the gentle overcomes the rigid. Everyone knows this is true, but few can put it into practice. Therefore the master remains serene in the midst of sorrow. Evil cannot enter his or her heart, because he and she has given up on control. He and she is the world's greatest help. True words seem paradoxical, said the sword. But what if we fail? What if our efforts are not enough? Surely the sword comes to bring forth what is just. Failure is an opportunity. If you blame someone else, there is no end to the blame. There the master fulfills her and his own obligations and corrects her or his own mistakes. She and he does what they need to do and demands nothing of others, said the sword. Then those are true words of nature. True words aren't eloquent. Eloquent words aren't true. Wise men don't need to prove their point. Men who need to prove their point aren't wise. The master has no possessions. The more he does for others, the happier he is. The more she gives to others, the wealthier she is. The Tao nourishes by not forcing, by not dominating. The master leads, said the sword. Then who is the master? Although the functions in the many created minds may differ, the original mind stuff of the yogi is the director of them all. Only the minds born of meditation are free from karmic impressions. The actions of the yogi are neither good nor bad, but the actions of others are of three kinds, good, bad, and mixed. In other words, when our actions are performed with such equanimity, we don't bring them into the category of right and wrong. We simply do what we must to bring forth that which is just. My sword cuts, and if the sword cuts fruits, you may say it is good, but if it cuts a throat, it is bad. But to a sword, a cut is a cut. It doesn't matter where or what I cut. The one who wields the knife might face the good or bad reactions, but examine who holds it. It is not you, and it is not me. Rather, we hold it together, and we cut in order to become free. If we must cut a throat, then let it be wicked and evil. We have no ill ways, the same way a panther kills for its children's survival. Of these actions, the good, the bad, or mixed, 
Only those subconscious impressions for which they are favorable conditions for producing their fruits will manifest in a particular birth. And although desires are separated from their fulfillments by class, space, and time, they have an uninterrupted relationship because the impressions of desires and memories of them are identical. Since the desire to live is eternal, impressions are also beginningless. The impressions being held together by cause, effect, basis, and support, they disappear with the disappearance of these four. That means, the past and future exist in the real form of objects which manifest due to differences in the conditions of their characteristics. Whether manifest or subtle, these characteristics belong to the nature of creation. The reality of things is due to the uniformity of the power of creation's transformations. Due to differences in various minds, perception of even the same object may vary. Nor does an object's existence depend upon a single mind, or if it did, what would become of that object when the mind did not perceive it? An object is known or unknown, dependent on whether or not the mind gets colored by it. Due to its changelessness, changes in the mind stuff are always known to the transcendental self, who is the master, said the sword. And so the higher self is the master, which is pure consciousness, the seer, and the mandala of creation. But what does that mean for the mind of all us people? The mind stuff is not self-luminous because it is an object of perception by the transcendental self, which is called the purusha. The mind stuff cannot perceive both subject and object simultaneously, which proves it is not self-luminous. If perception of one's mind by another mind would be postulated, we would have to assume an endless number of them and the result would be confusion of memory. The consciousness of the Purusha, or the transcendental self, is unchangeable. By getting the reflection of it, the mind stuff becomes conscious of the higher self, said the sword. So then this is the nature of your sword, to reflect like a mirror so that we can see the seer and the highest self clearer. The mind stuff, when colored by both the seer and the seen, understands everything. Though having countless desires, the mind stuff exists for the sake of the transcendental self, because it can act only in association with it. To one who sees the distinction between the mind and the spiritual soul within, thoughts of mind as the spiritual self cease forever. Then the mind stuff is inclined toward discrimination and gravitates toward absoluteness. In between, distracting thoughts may arise due to past impressions. They can be removed by studying the previous sutras, said the sword. Again, it was not I who carried the sword, but rather it was all of us together. With this sword in spiritual hands, guided by the Swami, I myself had not ever known such power before. Then arose a voice in my heart, and so it said, We will break down the brass door with a sword. And so we left the innermost peak of Kailash to go downward back to the fourth floor. Again, it is not I who carry the sword, but rather it is the we. We are those spiritual protectors who bring forth the awakened destiny. Not I, but us. May all beings, plants, 
humans and creatures, be sovereign and free. May God protect us. But what if you can't do it? whispered a voice of doubt. Yes, we can. Not I, not me, but by the spiritual nature of all beings, it is not up to me. Not I, but us, and this is our destiny. We are moving forward to rebuild the great illuminated society. Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti.